Hey listeners, it's the start of a new week, so that means more unverified accounts for you. I'm your host, Chris, along here with Liza and Philip. What's up, guys? What's up? What's up? Hi. All right, so this episode, we're talking about Class Wars uh, after we read The New Class War by Michael Lind. But as usual, we'll uh, we'll like rattle off what's been happening the last week, which, to be honest, I've been a little out of touch because uh, ever since Atlanta, I've just been kind of off social media because mm-hmm. I knew exactly this would happen. First week, uh, saturation coverage. Uh, now it's dropped off. Uh, Asian week is over, guys. I guess Shark Week is next. After that, <laughs> we got Meerkat Week or something. But, I mean, then the, the shooting in Boulder happened. And then mm-hmm. now this thing in the Suez uh, Canal, which I, I barely know what's going on. Um, and just this, like, mega tanker is still blocked there. Um, I think the only... I saw an imagine. Okay, this is how much... We miss Trump. I saw somebody doctor a Trump tweet, uh, which would have said, just ram it with another ship. <laughs> uh, so, you know, without him, uh, none of this stuff is particularly funny anymore. So Twitter sucks without him. Yeah, maybe that's why I'm not there anymore. But as usual, people will continue being dumb on the internet and things. So we'll uh, we'll get to it. Uh this one, not so dumb, but a bit disappointing. Um, Female Dating Strategy has a new podcast, which I checked out. They have two episodes. I listened to both of them. Philip, you said you and your wife both listened to the first episode. The episode, first half right? of like one episode, yeah. I mean, it felt very, I don't know. I don't really follow the sub at all, but it, from what you shared from it, which sometimes is, has some pretty extreme content, this felt like a very watered down version of what they talk about on that sub. Yeah, it was nowhere near as entertaining as the subreddit. It seemed like a very standard dating with a little bit of, uh, you know, a smidgen of non-PC attitudes kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but, it just, you know, it's just felt... When you watch a daytime talk show talk about dating, it just felt like that. I, yeah. I wanted the real juicy stuff from the subreddit, you know, all the funny terms like Cockholm syndrome, you know, scrotes. <laughs> um, well, they talk about, like, low-value males and stuff. But again, that, that just seems relatively objective. Such uh, harsh so. language. Yeah, that sub's hilarious. Everyone should check it out. It's actually entertaining and educational i find um but anyway so that's kind of a disappointment hopefully they uh they start being more like a subreddit but um moving on uh, some more stupid cancel culture stuff some of the stuff i just found out about yesterday because i've been kind of off of uh online stuff for a bit did you hear about this thing with Lindsay ellis uh Mm -hmm. who's apparently some popular youtuber but she tweeted something about raya being very derivative of avatar the last airbender which she said was basically half of YA now is all Avatar: The Last Wait a Airbender. Minute. That's that was con- <laughs> like I didn't see that. I've I've also been off of social media for um a little bit, but like that's controversial. Like no well, one else picked up on that. Like I thought it was pretty obvious. Yeah, and which makes me so obvious just- that we didn't even talk about it when we did our own review of the movie. Yeah. I just wonder if people had a previous beef with her. I saw some tweets that suggested she had been the type who had gone after people for innocuous tweets as well so this might have been uh a case oh, of like a revenge against thing. the hypocrites thing yeah but yeah. the tweet in and of I itself i don't even know who she is i've never heard of her yeah me neither um i mean i'll read the tweet it said also watch raya and the last dragon i think we need to come up with a name for the genre that is basically avatar the last airbender reduxes <laughs> it's like half of all <laughs> ya fantasy published in the last few years anyway i don't know what people saw in that uh, if not for the whole hypocrisy thing uh which you know i, I don't want to get into because here's don't my here's my question like who what is exactly the group of people who are dragging her like are, are they southeast asians who liked raya i thought everybody hated raya because of all the controversy around you know as we discussed <laughs> well uh, i guess only if you only if you're southeast asian you're allowed to criticize it which is probably why it has like a 94 percent rating right now on rotten tomatoes uh, even though, you know, the movie was very, uh, um, unless a bunch of eight year olds uh, wrote the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> because kids like that movie. The, yeah. the energy I saw of people dragging her, tw- that particular tweet when I caught it online was people saying like, this is, this is like a dumb white woman who shouldn't be commenting on like media that contains asian culture like that was oh, kind of so the that's what it's energy. really about which is that's so what ridiculous really about, right? absolutely ridiculous like what just because you're not of the because then that doesn't that go the other way around when say oh you're asian you can't comment on this latino or black or even white thing i mean that that doesn't make any sense so 
That's absolutely ridiculous. I don't get it. Like Avatar's a, I haven't, I personally haven't watched it, but I know it's a very popular show amongst a pretty wide demographic of people. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty excited the first time I heard like some white friends of mine watched it, enjoyed it, you know, and and said like, hey, it's good. It's like non problematic Asian stuff. I've watched some of it with my kids. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. Right. So so it was cool that people were getting into it who, you know, weren't necessarily Asian, but now people are kind of like guarding it, it feels like to some extent. And now guess who created Avatar The Last Airbender? A bunch of white dudes, right? Definitely de- wasn't I Asians. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, I bet they couldn't create Avatar: The Last Airbender these days. They would have gotten accused of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely ridiculous. She also tweeted this thing uh, that some people are also calling her out, out on. This was February of 2020. She tweeted, "Someone sitting in front of me on this plane is watching the movie Harriet, and I find myself wondering whether there is any Raylo-style fan fiction between Harriet and her Twinkie former owner, and suddenly grateful that." The connection on this plane is not strong enough for me to check. If, <laughs> if anyone's seen Harriet, she's saying nothing wrong. There is this really weird forced uh, romantic narrative between Harriet and her white slave yeah. owner, played yeah. by Joe Alwyn, uh, better known as a Taylor Swift's boyfriend. <laughs> and it's just very strange because like, why is this in this movie? Um, this seems like some weird, uh, you know, Fifty Shades of Slavery type of thing that they... <laughs> I think she's totally accurate in calling this out. Maybe people are embarrassed because, I mean, some people really wanted that movie to succeed. Maybe those those are the same types trying to call her out for being racist about that. I don't see what's racist about telling the truth about that weird element. I think um, that we've gone into, like, we've we've entered the realm of white person speaks, therefore it's racist. Right, yeah. And That's where we are again, now. We've gone, hey, we've gone too far. Well, it's, it's like white person speaks about beloved person of color media but, but is harriet beloved. beloved harriet I was loathed i think by many black people if not most black people it's just like the blue check crowd really wants to canonize this as actual history and raya i don't know i, I think definitely asian children probably love it and i'm happy for them but i don't think most asian americans give a damn about raya at all uh it's they, like, I oh, mean, that's asian nice. kids like it because to them it's like oh it's like a new story and like mm-hmm. something new to watch and also like um a whole bunch of halloween costumes to uh <laughs> oh, yeah 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 there's a dress-up element where it's like i want to be raya for halloween yeah, i like want to be kid cosplay. yeah 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 I, I watched a recently Honest Trailers uh, made one about Raya and they made a I good point. I love Honest Trailers. They made a good point about how there is no reason that they should have trusted Numari considering how he does <laughs> shit. Yeah. Backstabbed. <laughs> and that's so true. <laughs> um, all right, moving on. Uh, <laughs> crisis at the Oxford Student Union. So... There's a woman named Rashmi Samant who was the first Indian woman to be elected president of the Oxford Student Union. And she her whole platform was decolonizing Oxford. Yeah, good luck with that. But then <laughs> her tweets from the last few years uh, got revealed, one of which she was apparently in Malaysia on a vacation with her friends and she captioned something Ching Chang. And then she made up and then a couple of years before that, she was at the Berlin Holocaust Memorial and made a pun in the caption. Have you guys ever been to the Berlin Holocaust Memorial? No, really want to go. Okay, it's beautiful. So, Liza, have you no. been there? Mm-mm. Okay, so it, it's uh, unless I'm getting mistaken with some something else. It's this interesting thing where you it's like it's an outdoor like plaza, and then you walk down these stairs and you get so kind of like there's these tall, uneven. Uh, like I guess they kind of look like skyscrapers. I guess they're just like obelisks. Uh, yeah, but they're like rectangular prisons, but yeah. they're all uh, stand above you. And when you go there, it gets very quiet and dark. And I think that's what they're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a social media death trap because I think it's very easy to kind of forget you're in a Holocaust memorial because you know you don't see pictures of you know pri- or like statues of prisoners or things like that mm-hmm. and then people i know like for example famous athletes have gotten in trouble because they'll like pose with in kind of a disrespectful manner in the holocaust Memorial. so why is she canceled <laughs> apparently she wrote an insensitive caption they don't tell in the article it doesn't say i'm reading a vice like article it about it uh the article yeah. said so yeah. yeah i hate uh, when articles do that so cowardly i mean this is vice too right like, come on just say the fucking thing they said yeah but the most hilarious thing is okay first she was uh very adamant about 
saying this is not racist i'm against racism but i think eventually she relented uh and then now she's got the entire government of india behind her back because they're now saying <laughs> that this is all a anti-hindu plot and is Hindu part of and it's part and parcel of the uh, anti-Hindu racism in England, which I'm sure is very real. It's very real. <laughs> uh, so now there's like hashtags started by a lot of, I think, Indian nationalist types. Uh, Justice for Rashmi Samant, anti-Hindu Oxford University. And it's just like, this so, is... So, okay, you know yeah. what? Let everyone just go, like, let all the cancel people, like, let them just go nuts and cancel everyone that they want to. Because eventually, all those canceled people are going to come back stronger. <laughs> no, but this is this is what's happening though. She's being uncanceled because she's got the fucking Indian government's backing, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess two cancel. It's so like she, you know she, two so negatives. She, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Together. She's like, doing what also, doing. So yeah. let them. So let people cancel them, so that when they get uncanceled, you know, it like it it just shows the complete hypocrisy of everybody and how ridiculous these culture wars are. Yes. So I think what you're saying is you because you basi- the uncanceling looks rational and the canceling looks really dumb. Yeah, I so mean, yeah, she said let them look as dumb as possible. Yeah, I mean, she said Ching Chang. I honestly don't give a damn. I mean, this is not even someone that's going to be that important, like a, a president of the Oxford Student Union. I mean, who cares, right? Uh, yeah, it, it, and the, yeah, it's so ridiculous. And you know, continuing on this hypocrisy and ridiculousness <laughs> teen vogue apparently uh according to, <laughs> according to his tweet by a woman named femi redwood on twitter teen vogue has apparently gone completely silent in the last week <laughs> um everyone knows about the alexi mccammond controversy yeah. so mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. basically fired her eventually i think after the atlanta thing happened and they realized this is an untenable position for us but what apparently one of the people who was like on he I think she's the social media manager. Her name is Christine David. Uh, who I think she's like at least part Filipino <clears throat> or something. Uh so I read that somewhere. She had apparently tweeted the N-word uh even longer ago, I think sometime in like 2009. Uh so people were calling Teen Vogue out on that. And I think Teen Vogue can't really I don't I guess they realize they just keep they just firing can't fire every single day and they can't <laughs> <laughs> but according to their own standards uh this person should be let go so you know <laughs> team vogue what's up um but you, you gotta wonder like what they're doing you know what their social media team is like doing are they just like huddled up in a fucking war room right now and trying to say like okay we're, we're gonna get dragged no matter what we say so everyone what we... delete your accounts just delete your accounts yeah but yeah. i'm sure the so the kind of like the alt-right for i mean this is what ca- causes such weird alliances because everyone just graphs onto their own politics on this so apparently i think the alt-right is now standing up for alexi mccammond and championing like i guess <laughs> protect black women or its equivalent uh and saying uh-uh we shouldn't be able to use the n-word because they just want to get back at teen vogue i'm sure because like teen vogue's a woke magazine so they, they would really mm-hmm. they love seeing teen vogue twisted up like a pretzel here and it's so childish um and it's interesting yeah. that the alt right is more strategic here than Teen Vogue or anyone else, right? Like they're just I was trying just to... about to say that we are entering an era where the people that you hate the most are going to have some very poignant things to say. Yeah, that's 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 the thing. It's just um, you know, wis- wisdom can now be found because when the mainstream is so convoluted and stupid, people who make sense unfortunately can come from you know across across the aisle and stuff which actually i think uh blends into the new classwork because it don't is don't use written- that phrase again <laughs> oh which phrase across the aisle <laughs> <laughs> which i think uh well we'll get to talking about the new class war later but i mean that's written by michael lind who is you know he's a heritage foundation guy american enterprise institute guy so you know uh, really good book highly uh, recommend so, it but you know it doesn't mean he doesn't have good points in his book which i think we can now talk about this thing that that uh, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty talked about on their show on the Hill about Andrew Yang, um, about how a lot of Asian activists hate him, and they were calling out like the activists were one thing being out of touch with Asian Americans. Apparently, something like sixty percent of Asian Americans support Andrew Yang. Uh, he is leading 
so I think far, that that's true because I know a lot of people that do support him. Yeah, and his ideas. Uh, he is currently leading the poll in New York City, although a lot of people are undecided. So I don't, I, I don't think that's really the most reliable poll. Uh, and yeah, so and also the the media has um, always been against him. Uh, you know, from the start of his presidency uh, run. But uh, yeah, again, someone like Saigar Jetty is right wing and he is, for instance, like very anti-China and stuff. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't mean he doesn't have good points to say from time to time. And we'll post do- the clip. Yeah, we'll post a clip here. And, you know, like someone like Crystal Ball, who is I would I don't know if she would be a standard kind of like Bernie supporter, because I think she I mean, for one thing, like she like supports Andrew Yang and stuff. So she's not the most orthodox leftist. But again, like some of like these people are much more interesting than the standard, you know. I'd rather listen to them than like the standard blue check liberal whose own whole script I can predict if I once I just see their bio, you know, if they have certain keywords to look out for. But anyway, I read I'll... their book that they wrote together. Oh yeah, yeah, you told me they had a book together. So, I mean, what are and, your thoughts uh... on on this whole matter? I thought it was interesting how passionately the two of them came out to defend Andrew Yang. Like I've seen their show a couple of times before on other topics. I don't always agree with them, but here is the just a tone of how they uh, talked about like the allegations against him and like how kind of like um, you know how out of touch that his his, his critics are right with the actual um, actual Asians, right? Not just like media class like elite Asians. Mm-hmm. It really it really shows that they um, they can smell the hypocrisy. Or they mm-hmm. can smell the mm-hmm. the like lack of you know understanding that comes from whoever it is that's going after Andrew Yang. So I thought that was interesting. I also do wonder though, like now that they kind of like thrown their hat in to say that they support him, if some some of his critics will use that as a way to say, "Hey, look, he's being supported by right wingers," you know. So well, Crystal Ball's not a right winger though. So that I will... know, but you know what they say about all those Bernie supporters. If you're not a liberal, yeah, the horseshoe theory bullshit. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you're not a liberal, you're basically a right winger because they can't fathom that anyone would be to the left of liberals. Uh, Eliza, your thoughts? Um, no, my thoughts are the same as you guys. Mm-hmm. Like I watched the once you watch the clip, it's like they spell the whole thing out. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rehash the clip on here, but you know, for the audience, if they want to watch the clip, it's it's right there, and they don't hold back on anything. They 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 say it. They say it very plainly, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not particularly an Andrew Yang supporter, but I am very. I, I'm also. I'm also very irritated at how a lot of the Asian activists go go against him because I don't think it's a good faith thing. I, I think they were against him from the start, and all the dumb shit he's done since uh, was retroactively used to justify an already existing bias against him. And honestly, I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that Andrew Yang is like an ultra normie. He is the type of Asian American that Asian activists, Asian journalists, Asian writers, these types of people always have thought they were better than. And I think when they chose basically their life path, they made this, they had, at, at a certain fork in their road, they, they thought, I can become like the standard so-called boring Asian with a, with a standard job, you know, go to a, you know, like a professional school and become a doctor or engineer, lawyer, that type, um, and make a steady living uh, you know, have exist in mostly Asian circles, move out to the suburbs, and I will have an easier life in terms of financial stability and all that. Uh, but I will be totally irrelevant. Therefore, I will choose a career that is much more precarious and, you know, much less well-established in terms of predictability and career path. But at least I will matter because I will be where things are happening. I will not be in like the Asian social ghetto, all that. And then they see someone like Andrew Yang, who has kind of been able to do both. Way he, more it, fascinating than any of them. He's <laughs> such a normie. He yeah. is. Uh, I mean, this is how painfully normal Andrew Yang is. Uh, apparently, he when he dropped off his signatures uh, <laughs> in the few last few days. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I did. He started singing. Seasons of love from Rent. <laughs> it was kind of it was charming. Like you can see why people love that. The, the crowd who was there to like the news crowd who was there like really bought into it. I thought. So. Yeah, but it, that's like the last. If if you want to be perceived as like a cool New Yorker, uh, <laughs> the last thing you want to admit to is being a Rent fan. That's right. Uh, especially if you're if you're a transplant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean that in, in the show Girls. That's how that's how Marnie signal. That's how you get you know Marnie's a basic bitch. She admits to lo- loving Rent. <laughs> Anyway, 
so Andrew, but Andrew Yang is ultra normie, uh, yet he has become this like political star. I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, he peaked at like 2% in the presidential polls, but hey, that's like more than any other Asian American has achieved. It raised his profile though. Yeah. And he's way more Mm -hmm. relevant than any of these activists, many of whom are probably like lifetime activists. And I I think it kind of makes them question their own life. And I think that's one of the reasons they've really loathed him from the start. I've even heard- Well, they went into activism because they wanted to get like book deals and they probably wanted to become like some sort of like political figure. Yeah, they. In other words, they wanted to be. Yeah, they wanted to be relevant. They wanted to matter. They wanted to be like the special Asian who could, again, uh, Liza, you're gonna hate me. Reach across the aisle. (laughs) 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 And I think that's one of the things that bugs them about Andrew Yang. Andrew has some of the most random uh, supporters. If you see his endorsements, Um, it's really funny. He's also like fascinatingly horrible at Twitter. Yeah, he's like he's. But that's what I think kind of makes him good in that. Right, because I think the worst thing to. The worst thing to be on Twitter is boring, right? Um, he is... He's so vague. Yeah, like, he'll he'll have, like, these bad tweets, and then pe- it gets people at least engaged. Um, oh, it gets so people I, riled up, which is probably a good thing if you're on Twitter, you know, because you get more traction. Yeah, um, and... Oh, what's this thing? Yeah, he has these random endorsements. He obviously has cross, like demographic appeal otherwise he he wouldn't be in the lead in new york and i think that honestly i think that's what bothers these activists that he's kind of like he's found when another activists path complain yeah. about him do they ever talk about his policy like his you know the crown jewel of his policy ubi do they ever talk about that or is it just about him like they don't like his personality or well that's the like, thing when it? when they first started they attacking like his followers him, yeah i think that's the thing they i think it's i think it's three things they don't like the fact that he didn't come through like if you're an asian activist he didn't come through the whole like uh you know poc ally uh social justice complex mm-hmm. he's he's like he's a tech like, bro <laughs> well, I, I think that's also i don't think he knows much about tech i think he's he's a business guy who kind of hangs around tech people which makes yeah. him a tech bro but i don't think he actually knows that much i about always tech thought that stuff. he was like more of like an entrepreneur type like startup guy yeah but yeah, not, but not yeah. Like yeah but i'm saying startup, i'm saying his like his, a- his like energy his like you know where his kind of um his vibe is like tech bro right it's like He's that normie like sales like a salesman type kind of a little bit a little bit corny but yeah yeah so i think he didn't come through up their system so they can't control him they don't like his supporters because uh straight I, white guys they're yeah disproportionately young straight and male, particularly white male, I think. How did that th- happen, though? Because UBI is like, I, I don't understand why that's become like like a white bro. I, I think because it's too, I mean, this is kind of twisted, but my theory is that because it's too universal. In the whole like social- So it's Medicare for all again. It's it's yeah, all, yeah. it's like to people, like, so liberals hear all lives matter when they hear UBI yeah, exactly. or Medicare I, for all. Yeah. I mean, I think there is legit leftist concerns about- a certain type of UBI that will just essentially be placating the masses with a few pennies, uh, relatively speaking, and it's not comprehensive enough. But I think a, a good chunk of the uh, of the other people I mean, like it. I mean, nobody sent that, back their stimulus checks. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. But I think there is a, a certain wing of of the whole such social justice crowd who think that anything that is too universal is basically rewarding white racists and they need to be punished and humiliated. <laughs> uh, so, you know, whether it's UBI, Medicare God. for all, college forgive- let's loan withhold forgiveness. Thing. Let's withhold policy that would actually help everybody because uh, because a couple people are going to benefit also. Yeah. Okay. And, and Yang has also come out against identity politics at least, at least once, uh, I think on, maybe it was like the Breakfast Club. I, I don't remember know. that. I remember Joe that. Rogan. I, I agreed with him actually. So he is this. He like, said straight that what Asian... he said was that they were were too busy fighting a culture war mm-hmm. and were not paying attention to politics. Yeah. So he's this like straight Asian dude who is not part of their who did not come through their program who's talking against identity politics. So it's like he does nothing for them. And in fact, he probably is kind of a threat to them in terms of their relevance because if he succeeds, it proves that well, why do we? Why should any of us listen to you? So I mean, yeah, the more we talk that. about him, the more I actually admire him. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got a couple of things to say in response to that. First of all, Chris, you said that you know these uh, activist types, Asian activist types, they like chose a career path on purpose to be different. I don't know if that's true because they all seem to fall into the same 
kind of patterns of like creative class jobs that they take up. So I don't see them as particularly unique because they no, follow a pattern, right? They're well, that's the that's the thing, right? They they have this image in their mind of mm-hmm. it's what an Asian Americans are, yeah, and they do the ex- what they think is like the exact yeah. opposite. But, but they then, all do it. They all but do it. But then they don't right? realize that everyone else kind of like them are doing the exact same thing. Exactly, so then they yeah. end up uh, exactly homogenous. It's, but, uh, but okay, so this is the other comment, which I think is a good segue into the topic, which is that it feels like there's this ongoing theme of these kind of Asian elite, overclass media types, academics, you know, creative class types that are losing relevance and that they're struggling, they're starting to struggle to like tread water and stay relevant. And one way that they've done that is like this critique of Andrew Yang, right? They're saying, not him, someone like us instead. Yeah, right? I think that's the crux of their argument. Uh, yeah. Why is this guy succeeding where I, like, I was, I was, or, Maybe not I specifically, but people like me, Asian Americans like me, were supposed to be the vanguard of our community. We're supposed to be the leaders, supposed to be our representative voices. And here's this dude um, who, by most accounts, is kind of, in terms of politics and stuff, very calm and almost boring. Mm-hmm. But I've even heard some people call him as like a toxic Asian male. Like, if that's toxic by your sense, I don't know what you would call like 99% <laughs> of all the other guys out there. Um, so, I think it, it it does, I think, make them question their own life choices. Right, right. And you're right, Philip. Let's get talking to uh, the new class more. But before that, very important topic, Prince William, apparently the sexiest bald man <laughs> in the world. What, what your thoughts, guys? Stupid. <laughs> also, like, backhanded compliment. Like, I can't even... There's nothing wrong with being bald, but there's something about, like, when you have to qualify it that way, like, sexiest bald man. There's something very... Um, like, fastest fat guy award. <laughs> yes yeah it's like it's a handicap or something you know yeah <laughs> i saw some guys tweet like because people were making fun of you know when the whole remember when megan markle was number one news guys that was, that was megan markle week preceded asian week and you know now we're in like suez week i guess but uh when people were saying oh who knew um you know prince harry would turn out to be the hot one and things like that and there were guys <laughs> who were like I have alopecia. This is very hurtful to me. And then <laughs> other people were saying, yeah, we got to cut out on the bald shaming, guys. The bald shaming. Yeah, I got to say, is it, it feels like a that very... That has got to be a PR move that was like totally <laughs> financed by by the uh, the royal family. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. It sounds like a very nice distraction for the royal family right now to have that going How on. How convenient. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you want to put it very darkly, the royal family should be very thankful to the, the Atlanta shooter. He took them off the news cycle. That's completely. true. That's true. And but, the Suez Canal situation. But if that sexiest bald man list is not dominated by black men, that's total racism. It's like... <laughs> yeah, any, so any, bald any bald black, black guy is way hotter than Prince William Jesus. Yeah, and there's so so many bald black guys. And um, you're, you're telling me that Prince William is... He's like not even... He doesn't even fully embrace him. I, he I think still he's has not even like, like top 10 what, famous white guy, bald, bald No, man, definitely so. not. There's these people saying like justice for Stanley Tucci. <laughs> I think Stanley Tucci is way more handsome than He is more than handsome, Prince yeah, William. totally. Yeah. totally. I mean, he's a he, bit older, he but... He was robbed. He was robbed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that, with now that important discussion out of the way. All right, let's <laughs> get into the new class war. Um, Liza, you want to give us kind of a quick summary of what this book is because you recommended this to us? Yeah, basically what Michael Lind is saying is um, that this is... Um, one of the reasons, I'm not going to lie, is that I really wanted to look for a book that had a lot of class analysis, and this was a very slim volume, so, <laughs> so it was not threatening. Wit, so, yeah. It was not threatening at all, and when you flip <laughs> through the book, there's not a whole lot of academic jargon. Like, it's, it's, it's really accessible. Um, mm-hmm. He's basically saying that, like, capitalism is disappearing. We're, we're in a late stage of capitalism, but... And I think that this is where people like um, conventional leftists might have a problem with it. But I thought it was interesting. So I decided to keep going. He 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 basically says that capitalism is disappearing, but socialism is not replacing it and probably won't. Mm -hmm. And what's arising now is a new kind of planned centralized society, which will be neither capitalist nor capitalist. not even democratic, uh, and the rulers of this new society will be people who effectively control the means of production. So it's like business execs, uh, tech bros, bureaucrats, um, 
you know, defense contractors all lumped together. Uh, he calls them the professional managerial class mm-hmm. or just managers. He uses the term overclass a lot to describe them, which is a, yeah, he like does. a really good yeah. like single word description. And he sees today's populist revolt as a very unsurprising response. Like uh, these people, these managers, these overclass, uh, they're going to eliminate the old capitalist class. So, but but in in the process, they're also going to crush the working class, um, and organize a society where like all the power and economic privilege is just in their own hands. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't cheer it on that like these people are are like eliminating the capitalist class of of yesteryear because it's not like they're bringing up the people with them. Yeah, they're crushing everybody. He he really goes hard against neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. He also goes against like um like demagogues, you know, the demagogue form of populism. He says that they're not forms of democracy at all. I thought that was really fascinating too, because it's so easy for people like that's how Trump came into power, right? He he mm-hmm. came across as like this like anti government or like anti authority figure, and he a lot of people bought into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Philip, you you like message us in the signal you 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 really took to this book so what were your thoughts yeah i mean i i I think uh liza's summary is good and i i think the only thing i would add that was what drew me into it was um the way that it they talked about um the you know pmc managerial overclass being one class the working class that's you know very uh uh likely to be controlled by a demagogue like Trump being another class. But he also talks about a third group, which is important, which is this group of like low income immigrants who come over. And he, spe- he specifically talks about how like, okay, sometimes immigrants come over to like America or Britain, for example, and they're already PMC, right? They're, they're already educated and so on. And they will assimilate or their next generation will quickly assimilate into that managerial overclass. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, the group of immigrants who are going to stay in the, you know, low income group for some time. And that they're important in two ways. One is that they uh, tend to like be used as a kind of a wedge to uh, like disrupt labor progress for the underclass, right? Basically, you know, think about like way back in history, right? Like the Chinese workers coming on to work in the railroads and, you know, how much that pissed off the the native um like low wage uh, railroad workers, like that kind of thing. Um, but the other part of, of why they're important is that they come in and they also serve as kind of a service class to the managerial overclass, right? Right. And Think like, like you know, like uh, Filipino nurses, cleaning and, yeah. ladies, right? Like um, you know, folks who have to do those jobs that the managerial overclass expects to have in order to maintain their lifestyle. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the barista was not really a job until we got to a certain level of like um, of wealth. Right. Before we could have that kind of like lifestyle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The cleaning person, so on and so forth. So that was interesting to bring that in because that actually links it nicely to some of the conversations we have around like the different classes for Asians. Like I was throughout the book, I was thinking about like, where do, where do the Asian Americans fit in this? Right. Like we are part of that overclass to some extent, like the three of us kind of are. And then there's people who fit into that, um, you know, underclass of immigrants who are lower income, um, you know, and there's a, there's a divide there. But, you know, to his point, it's the people in the overclass who get to dictate, you know, how the entire group is perceived, right? Yeah. Think about like this with the recent Atlanta murderers, right? People who are speaking up on many, many platforms are those more educated higher income, people who are actually in media, in activism, you know, college educated. But the people who were shot, killed and affected by this were all working class. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was, that was, I mean, it was kind of interesting to read the book with that in the backdrop because it gave a concrete example of how this com- comes together for, for Asians. And yeah. you propelled through it pretty quickly because it's so short <laughs> it's so short yeah i actually got to uh i wrapped it up just a couple of days ago and uh, i remember getting to like the 80 percent mark in my app and it was like pro- epilogue or whatever i was like oh it's pretty quick so it's pretty easy <laughs> to read yeah yeah uh, one interesting idea that he lind brings up is the need for more localized cultures uh, his whole point is that culture is way too dominated now by 
uh, I hate this cliche term, but by, by coastal elites, to mm-hmm. the point where if you are say in like rural Indiana and you say the wrong thing on social media, enough angry people in say Manhattan can get you fired from your job, and that's a pretty extreme case. But that's the but he's right. Yeah, but that's the path we're going to, and. You know, that's kind of like not fair to the person in Indiana because why should those people mm-hmm. in uh, Manhattan or San Francisco or you know, it's even like, yeah. like Austin or something? You can't force people to like have the same standards not, of your culture when their not, culture is totally different. Not only that, but I mean, the really uh, dangerous thing about this is now you are on the clock in terms of being under the jurisdiction of your employer 24-7. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you're like, in the bathroom tweeting something uh, on you know at, at midnight but like <laughs> your employer is basically watching you uh and that is an extreme just yet another erosion of just like workers rights and just the expansion of the kind of like feudal powers of the employer which we talked about in our episode about bullshit jobs mm-hmm. now it's not even the office the the fifa has extended into your into your bedroom and into your bathroom um that's absolutely ridiculous and he and he talks about how uh you know things you know people who are m- maybe more religious and they're they're you know they prefer for example shows that are not as sexually explicit or whatever uh you know they have a right to their own localized culture to which mm-hmm. i kind mm-hmm. of agree i guess because no i very much agree with that because we're all about people all demand their own like segmented stuff mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if so if you get your uh super woke pro trans um diverse stuff i mean i guess as long as it's they're they're not out there right there's promoting... a place for you in like rural indiana but you can't expect it to become like the dominant culture right and that dominant culture is often of the elite class um that's uh cuz you know i mean philip you talked about it with immigration because things like you know like wokeism it, it doesn't benefit people the same way if you are in the elite class especially after you know you've gone to say uh, the right schools and everything uh, you know you derive a certain social benefit from from like being woke but who is often paying for it and we see this a lot with say you know service workers who are already like on, at on the Smith fringe College of society when that janitor yeah got fired and you know you'll get your social media points you you'll impress your friends if you like call those people out but you know those people don't their friends aren't impressed by that stuff and and, and they're on the hook for losing their job for mm-hmm. if they got called out for that so the so as and with they immigration won't bounce back. and yeah it's hard for them to bounce back um the benefits are very disproportionately favoring the elite class mm-hmm. it makes me think of uh, uh you know how like these um Asians like to like talk about anti-blackness and they'll always talk about like oh my grandma or my uncle exactly. or whatever right mm-hmm. like but it's like they have no say in this matter they can't even respond to explain how mm-hmm. they got to their thinking you don't even talk to them about this realistically right so I, i've always said that the whole anti-black accusation is really just um it is a uh it's, it's a very like it's like a very soothing um euphemism for what they're really embarrassed of. And it's not the anti-blackness. It's like the, um, you know, they're just so, they're embarrassed by their their elder family members. Mm-hmm. Or they're less assimilated. Uh, yeah, they're less yeah. assimilated. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's really about. So calling them anti-black is a very PC way to just make fun of all the things that are un-PC to make fun of. That, that act of calling it out, I realize, is like one of the, I guess, in the minds or the subconscious of these elite Asians, it's like the final act of like detaching themselves from the underclass and ascending into the overclass in their minds. Yeah. Right. From a social perspective, right? Because they need to say these things in front of the right people to make themselves look assimilated. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a very like class transitory move. Um, that that really highlights that there are two different groups at play here and one gets way more attention and income benefits and all this stuff than, than the other. Mm-hmm. Here's one thing I don't, that I'm a bit wary about of the book though, because I, I if you do a little research on Michael Lind, he is a neoconservative. Yeah, I told I, I said before, he's, he's worked at the Heritage Foundation, um, American Enterprise Institute and all that. And when these people start uh, clamoring, for, like what he advocates is democratic pluralism, 
which he finds is a good balance in between um, the technocratic neoliberalism that he critiques, uh, and all, but also the kind of just demographic, not demographic, uh, demagogic populism, mm-hmm. which elects people like you know Trump and all that. So what he means essentially by democratic pluralism is the, the average American kind of getting more say. I mean, he talks about how uh, the first class, I mean, he says this is, we're in the midst of the second class uh, war. The first class war was won by the, the the underclass. This was like in the post-war period, basically the golden years of the American empire from like, you know, 1945 to like maybe the 70s where there was more equal sharing. <laughs> the biggest of the anomaly in history. <laughs> and he talks about how, for example, uh, you know, like a union rep would, would be respected in the White House or whatever. Like he'll, he'll mm-hmm. get a, a, you know, he'll get a say and and uh, the government saw these people as necessary as intermediaries whereas now you know unions have been totally gutted but then when i you know as i said when i see someone like him uh advocating for more balance i i do have to wonder is it because uh philip you were talking about how you know the the new kind of capitalist overclass are more like techie as opposed to like when we think of like old capitalists we think of maybe the, the guy who runs something like Hobby Lobby or some or something else, or like, like these, Anderson Cooper's grandparents, right? These you know, yeah. old factory owners or you know resource extractors, and I have to wonder would he have been more okay with these people because they would have been more on his side. I don't side. think so. No, I don't think so. Whereas now, the te- the techie people are, uh, you know, we don't like them either, but they're kind of more socially liberal. So he's thinking, all right, let let's uh, let's uh, cripple these people a bit by handing the people power to the people back now i just have to be a bit you know suspicious of of his motives there because he's neoconservative well because I, i'm just wondering if i mean we his just main like, beef with the overclass is that they i feel like what he's looking for is basically like the political version of the show the rising i don't know what that means so uh, could you elaborate more on that yeah like so basically, we just at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about how refreshing it is to see people like Sagar and Crystal Ball mm-hmm. both uh, taking a stand against, um, you know, like the neoliberal overclass. Oh, is that show called The Rising? Yes. Oh, okh. Okay. I thought you were talking oh, about some new Amazon series. <laughs> yeah, that I too. <laughs> like, oh, I haven't heard of that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right about that. I mean, they're very populist. And I yeah. think that this guy is pretty much on the same wavelength as them. Yeah, I, I think he is on Where the he same like, wavelength. He doesn't seem to care about like <laughs> Chris. Here we go. Who's on what side of the aisle? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. As long as they can both see the bullshit for what it is. Yeah, I think Lind is probably on the kind of like Sigar and Jetty type of right winger. Yeah, but because, so no, no, no. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to map out these these people's views because I think Lind he he's a self described liberal nationalist. So I think his ultimate goal is he's to yeah he's a patriot he does love the country I and mean, we can't all we can't just have like a bunch of america haters and, and like anti-capitalists <laughs> making all the the solution um recommendations mm-hmm. yeah and that's and I, never going to happen let's be real yeah and I, and i think lin's uh big fear is china i think that's the thing that's motivating probably all these because he's like okay we can't run a country where that doesn't take care of his people because that's going to weaken us against our next great enemy, which is China. He doesn't really and say that explicitly anywhere. I was going to say, I, I didn't I get it, that from him. I mean, I did get a hint of like, I got a hint of some anti-China stuff in there, but I didn't, I feel like it didn't like, it's not like the big thing that steers his politics. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's the, it has to be the motor that drives it because it's, um, it's it, especially if you are, kind of like a neoconservative that's that's got like china's like a hundred times more threatening than say islamic extremism ever was and these people were like obsessed with the fear of or or at least the performed fear of islam taking over the world so i think it's he's he's thinking oh my god like we gotta get a new national spirit at the heart of it though is like when he sees china as a threat i don't think that it's like a racist kind of thing i think it's more of like he cares about the country we still have to live here Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And like we do have to make it as good as possible for us to for the people that do live here. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's how I see it. I don't see it as some sort of like 
Confederate flag toting, like white nationalist, like white power kind of thing. Oh no, he, I mean, he hates those people. He's probably, I know he uh, does. He, he finds them probably extremely. Oh, he they're like finds wrong. I mean, he sees very, China as a threat because yeah. it's like, what does that mean if China becomes like the next world superpower? What does that mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for the the livelihoods of the pe- and the quality of life for the people here? Mm-hmm. Which are reasonable questions to answer, right, or to ask. Um, like, I, I understand that there's, like, a lot of, like, pro-China, like, like fuck America and all that. It's like, we still have to live here and we still have to have a future here. Yeah, well, especially like, for We're not all like going to just suddenly yeah. move to China and, like, cheer <laughs> on their rise as, like, America just, like, crumbles while we're in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I have to admit, I actually did not know who Michael Lind was before reading the book, which maybe has changed my perspective on, like, what to watch out for in terms of red flags but one thing i did notice that was maybe a bit of a red flag in my mind was that he his like uh democratic plural plural, pluralism uh solution that he keeps advocating for a part of that policy is around like much more tightened and like reformed immigration Mm -hmm. right he's like we should probably like have fewer immigrants come in because they like they get used by different you know interest groups to like be a wedge against uh you know certain certain other groups and if we had less of it this would be less of a problem and he goes into like all the issues of like globalism and so on as well that relates to that so that part was like that's uh, i don't necessarily disagree with him or agree with him like but it, it, it immediately when you hear like less immig- like ha- we, did, we need fewer immigrants it's a little bit suspicious right so that was a bit where i was like not quite sure what to make of it um, but I do buy his arguments that like, you know, when immigrants do come in, they get treated poorly and they get used by a certain class to, you know, to gain more power. And that bit is, is was interesting to, to read through for sure. Yeah. I mean, the tricky thing about immigration is that everyone becomes hypocrites on it because the same type of well-off people who uh, cheer on immigration because to them, it's this vague idea that marks them as inclusive mm-hmm. when those immigrants are suddenly the ones who are getting h1b visas and threatening their careers often mm-hmm. their tune changes right uh so um like i think if you go on like reddit for example there's always a lot of complaining about h1bs because the demographic of reddit i think are kind of more educated young white guys who are likely to either dream of or are competing in the same fields that require h1bs Sure. Um, nothing that Reddit is accepting of kind of lower class immigration, but I think it's a it's a telling sign that people usually kind of their self interest will take number one when immigration threatens them. Yeah, the the immigration piece apart, I I did kind of wonder as I read through the book, like what parts of this would be like palatable and acceptable to like the left left or yeah the left wing crowd. And I think like a lot of the stuff he talks about where he talks about um, uh, like strengthening unions again, making sure people who are in the underclass have like a social security net, like that's pretty reasonable, right? Like this, it sounds to me like now that I know what his background is, that he's not a, he he would be a decent middle ground for left, you know, left wingers to, to read into and kind of understand the thoughts of the other side. Um, again, reach, reach, reaching across the aisle, right? I think that like this is not <laughs> That's a bad. Be the title. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really corny, but that, that kind of is what it is. But the trouble is, and I think that's why we're hesitating to to talk about him in this way, is because like you know, the the minute you hear right winger, you, you know, you're if you're a leftist, you're on edge. You're like, oh, everything this guy is saying is used to. He's not Richard's. I mean, I I think that the problem is that we associate right winger with Trump and like Richard Spencer. Mm-hmm. Or or like the the Bush era people. Yeah, which, which is I, no I don't know if this guy support the Iraq War, but I no would different from the Democratic side of the aisle since they're all employed by the mm-hmm. current administration now. Like, yeah. <laughs> does it even does reach across the aisle even mean anything anymore? Does the th- aisle exist? Why well, I think the problem is they do reach across the aisle too much. At least the Democrats to the Republicans, but rarely vice versa. Right, that's the, that's the whole problem. I want to ask uh, you guys this question: Like, what would Asian American populism look like? You think? <laughs> I don't. I mean, know. Na- nowadays, would it be like more uh, police power, like more police protection, just because of the violence? I recently? suspect it's probably. I think that is a- applicable to the general population. That the whole like ACAP stuff is mainly online, and the average person is probably very unfavorable to that. 
The um, kinds of people that can understand when they read theory. Yeah. So I would not be surprised if uh, Asian Americans were. And that's not insulting people that can't read theory. I'm just saying that there's like a certain kind of person that likes to read theory and like can also understand it. Mm-hmm. I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think Asian American populism probably would be at least more protection for Asian Americans. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. there would probably be more. They would probably be more like pro school testing. No, what would what would the stance on immigration be by Asian American populists? It would. See, that's tricky, right? Because you see, because I, like not all just because you're Asian American and you're an immigrant does not mean that you are pro immigration. Yeah, it's the same yeah. with Latinos. A lot of Latinos don't really give a damn about immigration. May actually be kind of against it in terms of like yeah. illegal immigration. Uh-huh. Aren't like Vietnamese Americans pretty against too many? Yeah, immigrants, the, I, I even was, Asian ones. In the notes here, I wrote like I think about Vietnamese Trumpers, right, as that kind of Asian populist group. And yeah, well, I mean, one stance they have is like we got ours, we 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 made it out here, we set we, we put together a life here after a lot of hard work. We don't want other immigrants coming in and, and getting an easy road, right? Because we or already even like work. we don't want others. It's more just like well, we made it. I don't care about anybody else. Not just that. I think they also have this self-image of themselves as we we got this because we, we were did it loyal. the right way well we were loyal to americans that's why we got here and because we were anti-communist and all that and i think they like feeling special in that way that we don't want to be lumped in with with the rest of this riffraff who are you know swimming across rivers or even ones who are coming through through h1b's like we are special immigrants because we were anti-communist pro-america when our lives uh could have been ended because of it um, I think some of that's going on, but yeah, you, like you can't just broadly say all Asian Americans are, you know, open borders or something like that. I mean, that's yeah. what would prevent any. I, I really think that's one of the things that prevents um, any kind of like pan Asian American solidarity is their stance on immigration. Yeah, yeah, it's going to waver. I mean, just think about the fact that like if you're a new group that just came here, you may be very pro immigration because now you want to get your mom, your dad, your grandparents because it's, over, it's right? Affecting, it's directly affecting you. Yeah, yeah, but if you've been here for a while, you've established yourself, you've set up your small business and so on, you've been running it for 20, 30 years, and then there's a new wave of people coming by, you might just be like, no, I got mine. I don't want to make it easy for you, right? Or it would just be too much competition for me. Or, yeah, or that. And there's, there's to be fair, there's also, a, you know, getting on to the whole anti-blackness racism thing. Like there is some element of like, I don't want outsiders coming in now that I've established my home base here in America. There's Plus a- there's no guarantee that you'll even get along with them socially. You can even see that, for example, between frictions between second generation Asian Americans and international students. Mm-hmm. Like if we think of international students as essentially at least part-time immigrants, there is resentment there, especially since the the there will be these different perceptions of which class they belong to because the second gens might think they're actually in a superior class whereas the 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 immi- they do. recent immigrants <laughs> they do think might that. actually be objectively of higher class than them they're they're richer than them they, yeah. they dress better than they them they come from much more cosmopolitan cities you right, know they're like shanghai cultur- and they're coming to school in fucking like you know midwest university I yeah, feel like right. when they find out about that it makes them dislike them even more oh definitely definitely right right so it's not like if we think of second gen, they're like, oh yeah, let's let's let in more like fobs, and then our our strength will increase. No, sometimes they'll you won't socially get along with them. And in fact, we you know in terms of we were talking about the Asian overclass calling out the essentially the fobs for being anti-black. There could actually be a power struggle because they they each want to be like the face of Asian America. So there's that as well. I just don't think a second gen Asian like the whole collective group would be anti-immigration it's off-brand for them right because they're supposed to be more progressive so i don't think they would ever say no we don't want more immigration yeah well right? they would definitely definitely when they won't immigration, say it out loud although maybe they'll vote a certain way i, uh, I don't know about that but like they won't say it out loud for sure they i'm supposed to be talking about asian immigration because they definitely can't say anything against immigration when the perception is all immigrants are latino but yeah, when yeah, it yeah. came down to the issue of asian immigration i don't know like would they be for a wave of uh, Asian immigrants from China, for example. I don't know. I think um, that would be much more tricky. I think for- most second-gen Asian Americans are too daft. Even the ones who work in, say, tech are too <laughs> daft to understand like the dynamics of like H-1B immigration versus like other visas, right, and other classes of immigration. So I don't, I don't think they know. I think they just stick by their brand of like, hey, we're progressive, we're open, America's a melting pot, blah, blah, blah. 
and just would just let people in. But once the fobs get here, they get pissed off. Mm-hmm. I think school testing uh, would be another big issue. And this one's tricky because actually, I think uh, the vast majority of Asian Americans do support affirmative action, but affirmative action is not just school admissions. Like affirmative action can also um, mean, you know, promotions at, uh, at your workplace. So I think Asian Americans definitely will not be against, say, um, you know, say, uh, we, we don't have enough, you know, Asian executives at this company. We should, we should strive to put more of them. Uh, that's one kind of affirmative action. Another kind is, oh, yeah, we, we got to cap the number of Asian Americans at, at Lowell High or, or Stuyvesant or the Ivy League schools or something like that. So I wonder how many of those people who support affirmative action also support that kind of school admissions. And I suspect there would be quite a yeah, divergence. Yeah, th- that's another one that's going to be like the dividing line between any yeah. kind of true Asian American populism. Yeah, and I, I think it really just strikes a nerve among Asian Americans because it's it's such a fundamental uh, thing sold to us for coming to America, right? It's a, it's a land of opportunity. If you work hard, you can get ahead, unlike mm-hmm. those communist or dictatorial Asian countries you come from and then for them to be so blatantly yeah we're um yeah we just we just don't want you it's not really about getting into you know the number one public magnet school out there although you know it is uh part of it but I think it's just that hypocrisy of being sold that but then just they're not even bothering to lie about it anymore I think that's what this thing is really about it's about how true is the American dream. It's and um, I think some people try to downplay it, especially like Asian activist types, by saying, "Oh, you great grubbing Asians! All you care about is status and which school you get into." I mean, yeah. some are probably like that, but I think it's more just, "Hey, what the fuck is this bullshit?" I mean, uh, yeah, I, okay. I, I was just gonna say, like, I mean, there's like two sides to that, which is like one, it's like I think we as Asian Americans have to come to terms with the fact that Asia uh, affirmative action does hurt us now critical race theory does hurt us now, but also like can Asian Americans also fucking let go of like Harvard and Stanford? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what the fuck is wrong with your local regional college? Yeah. Your yeah. life will not be ruined. Believe me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would, I would love to see data like today as to how Asian Americans, especially like the high school class who are about to get into college and stuff. And maybe the ones who just got into college, feel about all this, like all this affirmative action stuff that's happened over the last four years, right? After like the whole Harvard, you guys have no personalities or bad personalities, all, that whole scandal. Because I think that there's been a a big kind of shuffling of opinions has happened that we haven't really seen much information on just yet. I will say when I go to the Asian American subreddit, uh, I most of the opinions there are very angry about these things. I, I, so I think if yeah, Asian but it's, it's is, one thing to go to a place where you can like you know rage about this thing you know pseudo anonymously. I just, I want to see like actual disanonymous data on how people feel about it. Yeah, but uh, you know, five years ago, I think the majority opinion on a place like Asian American would be, hey, uh, you know, affirmative action is good for everybody. Let's yeah, not get yeah. obsessed with Harvard. Um, you know, those Asians are probably just these anonymous great grubbers anyway. Versus <laughs> now, I think the default opinion I see and expect now is, is to be hopping mad about what's happening which at, is, which is, at Lowell or uh, yeah, Sty or something I think like that's that. good. Yeah, and I, I would just like to see how much that has shifted. But I agree the direction is probably in that kind of, maybe call it populist direction, right? Yeah. And before it was, I think, clouded by the fact that it was the Trump DOJ bringing these lawsuits. Yep, that's right. Or, or or getting getting sued or whatever. Right. Uh. So with Trump out of the way, it, it removes a, a you know a major like gravitational force that's direct misdirecting energy. Mm-hmm. Like when we get him out of the picture, like well, what are your real feelings? Yeah, it should be more clear now, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you know, Asian American populism. I mean, those are at least some of the hotbed issues I could think about that would that that show a, a schism between you know the the overclass and the underclass the thing that um i'm kind of stuck on i don't think i have answers for at the, by you know by the end of this book and this conversation is going back to what i was saying about how there's this interesting dynamic where the elite overclass now has to like bring in low income immigration or just take like low you know lower class underclass folks to come and service them like be the baristas be their cleaning person be their uber drivers and so on right 
Mm-hmm. I I wonder if you were to take the, that dynamic and you were just to, to apply it to like Asian Americans, what does that look like? Like, how does an Asian American, let's call it like a tech worker who like lives in New York City, works at um, I don't know Square or something, makes a six figure salary, has a nice apartment, you know, and then they don't want to clean their apartment, so they want to bring in a a you know maid basically, right? Um, and they bring in a maid, and it's like a call it like a Filipino or Vietnamese maid, like Southeast Asian, like underclass being paid very little what's the how do they deal with that you know what i'm saying like how, how does that because when you have race plugged in there too and they're kind of of the same race racial larger group as you like how do you feel about that are you okay with it would you just rather do it yourself and like not have that like do away with that luxury right um i kind of wonder if they feel differently than i think because i think white people just do it they don't really think about it. they're just like oh yeah i got a barista who's like you know some artist or whatever i don't care just they make my coffee. I'm good to go. Don't question like their working conditions or their salaries. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got like, you know, a, 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 a you know, the, the concierge staff are all brown or whatever, or my cleaning person is Southeast Asian. They don't really think about it aside from just acknowledging that they're of some race. But I think when Asians come across it, because they may see themselves in those folks or see their parents in those folks, right? Because um, maybe their parents were doing those jobs to, to get to where they are now. They may have a different reaction to it. It may interact with that service differently so i I do think about that part i kind of wonder how that's gonna land Mm -hmm. well i think they wouldn't be against immigration but they would be more for you know protecting those workers i think because i I, because i don't think then their solution would be well we got to limit immigration so these people can't come here in the first place because i think most asian americans have bought very much into the idea that uh immigration is generally worth it to America. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's faltered a bit in the last year or so, but overall, I mean, the reason why it was such a shock to most people uh, that America could be bad was because we <laughs> sincerely believe wholeheartedly that this was vastly superior to anything our lives could have been in Asia. Uh, so I, I think if they have, if, if you are, say, Southeast Asian and you see that all the uh, kind of menial laborers that you're hiring are Southeast Asian, mm-hmm. I think your instinct would be, hey, what can I do to to protect these people's rights as opposed to, all right, we got to limit immigration. Those people can't come here at all. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's also the lever that you, you can kind of operate on, right? Cause you can like a local union or a local workers group may much be, may be more visible to you than like what you could possibly do to affect immigration policy. Right. As like mm-hmm. a, whatever, like Asian tech worker. So yeah, yeah I, I can see that. And I think that's a, that's a good thing, right? To, to have that empathy and to care to try to make it better for the underclass. I think that's a good attitude yeah. to have. As opposed to accusing them of being anti-black, like some Asian Americans do to like nail salon workers. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. They see some, they see some uh, video on Twitter of, of some fight between like black customers and Asian nail salon workers. And they're like, their first thing's instinct is all oh, those nail salon workers were probably saying something anti-black. But if they see mm-hmm. a video posted about someone who is clearly being very anti-Asian, they completely ignore it or they twist the narrative so that it's like it goes right back to the anti-blackness. Yeah, they unless are just the hell bent on maintaining that narrative. Unless the offender is like a Karen, then then everyone becomes a mighty <laughs> he man or she man and uh, just uh, or she ra not she man. <laughs> and then then they become. Uh, you oh, know, the, you have the... to delete that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I honestly thought that was her name. Um, He-Man's a real character, he- right? He-Man and She-Ra. Yeah, She-Ra. She-Ra. What did you think it was He-Ra and She-Man? She-Man. No, I thought it was He-Man and She-Man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Uh, we're approaching an hour anyway, so we should we should uh, come to a close soon. But yeah, I mean, uh, the, we read the new class war. I tried reading... The people know, but that book is much more dense and uh, like a historical account. Now, unfortunately, they're both really interesting. Just read yeah. my notes. I wrote like nine pages of notes on both books. Oh, okay. I I, I didn't ask for. I should have asked for the the people yeah. know notes, but that gives like a very detailed uh, start of like populism in like, you don't the like late nineteenth century. No, I do. I do. It was just it, it, I just could not read it quickly enough, and then it was due at the library. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I get that. Yeah. I had the I had both books in that period during the pandemic when the libraries were closed for like six months straight, and so I had like the same fifty six books for six months. And like, oh wow, I just read all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing else to do. Actually, there was a lot to do, but I guess I don't know. I was like, yeah. Actually, the the people know how to. I I always knew that what the 
populist biggest thing was silver that they wanted to change to the silver standard because gold was they were on the gold standard but gold was much rarer so there was rampant deflation every year which meant that they as the farmers were massive debtors because you know their, their lives were just very difficult so that they had to borrow money to you know for equipment feed and all that so deflation really hurt them because the money they owed 5 years ago became worth more 5 years later so they, they actually it, it just made like the bankers and all those people richer so the big movement was uh, you know, let's convert to the silver standard because there's much more silver. And so then <laughs> they could control the money supply, would be more manipulable to ease deflation. And, you know, that's what the Wizard of Oz was all about. I, I remember hearing about that, uh, you know, when I was a kid, but just I didn't quite understand what was going on. But but reading that book made me realize a bit more of, of uh, the, like the whole thing was like gold versus silver. And the, But then they found a bunch of gold, additional gold later. So then... That's why it's almost snoring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is a very strange tangent to end the pod on. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> let me give you the history of like the gold standard. People know a very standard. historically dense book, but I, um... I never should have asked. I never should have said, "Chrissy don't like history." <laughs> anyway, um, so there, there's a silver standard uh, for you. Great. Uh, any cl- closing thoughts before we yes, end Yes, I actually wanted to say that um, the Oscars are coming up in like less oh, than right. a month. And I am very excited that nobody is talking about them. Like this is a dream come true for me. Wait, wait, I, I thought what? you would want people to talk about them. No, 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 no. Because the less people care about the Oscars and it just goes back to being like, like the Tony Awards or like the Emmy Awards versus the hardcore fans. Mm-hmm. We can finally just get back to like the craft of filmmaking and the Oscars won't feel so pressured to like make statements or like True, yeah. be part of like the zeitgeist. Yeah. You know, we can just focus on like what did everyone who cares about the Oscars like what was all of our favorite movie of the year? Like and that's it. We don't have to worry the same way like the Tonys and the Emmys don't really have to wor- they're not as held as accountable for like I don't know, not being inclusive or not being diverse or like having to like have the right message at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be more like an industry award. Um, yeah, that's what so, I want. I yeah. want, I would like that. Like my dream would just to, for the Oscars to care about movies. With that mm-hmm. said, that means you, you still want to do that one hour long episode where we go over all your, uh, all your predictions, right? And I'll put everyone asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay. Uh, all right. So thanks for listening to this episode. And as usual, we'll be back in a week. So thanks for joining us. And bye, everyone. See ya.